There's a lot of people in the scripture who are really important in the story and we don't know their names. We're going to meet a guy today whose name we do not know, but we do know this about him. He has been broken for his whole life. When the other kids were starting to crawl, he wasn't yet rolling over. I imagine his parents wondered about that, but they were still hopeful. When the other kids were walking, he couldn't even stand up. His, his feet and his ankles and his legs were just weak and misshapen, and it was becoming really clear there's something seriously wrong here. There were trips to doctors. There were specialists to be seen. And eventually the doctor said, some children are just born this way. We don't think he's ever going to be able to live a normal life. It's hard to maintain hope when you hear something like that about your own child. In those days, children like this were uh, usually just put to death. Uh, and if they were not put to death, their life was pretty much laid out in front of them. There were not a lot of options. There's no point in sending him to school. He's never going to learn a trade. He's never going to support a family uh, in this society, this is not the kind of a person who really has any shot at any hope. It was a hardship on his family. It was the opposite of a blessing to have a child like this. In, in, the, in the eyes of the culture, it was as if this was God's way of saying, hey, there's something wrong with this family. I'm not happy with these, this family. It was, a, it was a curse upon the whole family. It affected everybody. And so he was a beggar. From the time that he was a child. Now, when you have to beg and you're a little kid, you have an advantage. You're cute, people feel sorry for you, people help. But as he got older, it got harder. And every day they would carry him up to the steps of the the temple on the on the side of the temple, uh, the area known as Solomon's Portico, where everyone gathered, and he would beg. And when he was young, he probably used to pray, but now he knew better. God hadn't heard him after all these years. Certainly, God's not going to do anything now if God even exists. And if God does exist, he obviously doesn't care about me. What else would he think? So I would imagine by this point he had stopped praying. He had probably stopped hoping. He probably stopped looking for God. And this had been going on for 40 years. How much hope would you have at this point? By three o'clock, 
In the afternoon, it had already been a long and disappointing day for him. The crowd was starting to arrive for afternoon prayer, so there was still a chance. The group of people coming in, maybe somebody would notice him. Maybe somebody would care. Maybe somebody would take interest. Maybe somebody would help. But as far as he could tell, it's just another miserable day. Just another day hoping somebody would give him enough money to eat on. I seriously doubt if he had the courage to hope for anything beyond that. That's the story of our no-named friend. Meanwhile, Peter and John are heading to the temple for afternoon prayer. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's the time when people gather at the temple for prayer. The last several weeks for them had been a whirlwind. I mean, a whirlwind. They could just, just felt like it was yesterday, the triumphal entry, people shouting Hosanna and throwing the palm branches in front of Jesus and the donkey he was riding into town on. There was the Last Supper, this amazing time that they shared with Jesus that they would never forget. There was the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was the crucifixion that broke their heart and the resurrection that gave them new hope. There was the time that they had spent with Jesus and there was the ascension where they watched him go into heaven. And then there was Pentecost, which we talked about last week. It all happened over the course of like 50 days. No wonder they were headed to the temple to pray. There was a lot going on because now they are pastoring a megachurch. Thousands of people are under their care. Thousands of people, new believers who don't know anything, who have all these needs. And it's their responsibility to care for them. And they had no plan. And they had no idea this was coming. And they had no training. And they had no education. And they had no idea what to do. No wonder they were headed to pray. Wouldn't you? They didn't plan what was about to take place. And they had no idea of the impact that it would have. That 2,000 years later, it would still be changing lives. What happened that day? When it came to ministry, you see, for three years they had been traveling with Jesus, but they had been bystanders and Jesus had done all the heavy lifting, right? Oh, there was a couple of times when they got sent out in pairs and they shared the gospel with people and, and they ministered to people and they saw God do some things. But really, they always looked to Jesus. He was the one who took care of all of this kind of stuff. And now suddenly they're surrounded by people and they don't know what to do. But they're learning. They're learning to walk in the Spirit. They're, they're learning to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. They're learning to see when he's prompting them and to act on those promptings. And the Spirit is drawing their attention to this beggar. This guy had been there at the temple every day for something close to 40 years. These men had been going to prayer at the temple for their whole lives. 
How many times had they walked past him? How many times had he just been another face in a sea of faces that they didn't notice, didn't pay any attention to, didn't care about? I imagine they must have been talking with each other about Pentecost and all that had just happened. They're probably wondering how they're going to maintain this new church with thousands of new members. How they're going to maintain a new church. But there's something we have to understand, guys. Maintenance is never the purpose of the church. The church is a movement. The kingdom of God is advancing. It's not about staying still. It's not about um, comfort. It's not about ease. It's not about institutionalism. It's about a wave. It's about a movement. And they're just trying to think, how do they keep this thing alive? It's always advancing. And they're about to get swept up into the next wave. Well, that's the introduction. Turn to Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we're going to see this story unfolding. As the Spirit prompts Peter and John, they, they see this man and they realize that God has a plan for that moment in that man's life. When Peter and John were going up to the temple, Acts chapter 3, verse 1, at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, this is 3 o'clock in the afternoon, And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixing his gaze on him, said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, He stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. This is not the last miracle we're going to see in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book filled with unbelievable events where God reaches down into nature and tweaks nature and does something only God can do. We call that a miracle. We're going to see it again and again and again in the book of Acts. This book is full of miracles. In fact, let's not forget what we read last week in chapter 2. Go just turn back to the left and look at Acts chapter 2 verse 43. After speaking about Pentecost and the church gathering, here's what it says, Acts 2.43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. 
So the apostles are there. There's thousands of new believers. And many wonders and signs are taking place through the apostles. Through the apostles. Jesus had given the apostles specific powers. He had given the apostles specific authority. They cast out demons. They heal the sick. We're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. They even raise the dead. Well, not them, but God raises the dead through them, right? They have been given the office of apostle and all of the gifting that comes with that office to establish the church forevermore. This is one of the ways that God confirms the legitimacy of this new movement that we now call the church. He gave these incredible powers to the apostles. And that's one of the reasons that they had to wait for the Holy Spirit to bring power to begin their ministry. Just like with Jesus, these miracles that are done through the apostles and a few of the apostles' closest associates in the book of Acts, they got people's attention. And it gave credibility to the movement. People were in awe of God when they saw what he was doing through these apostles, all these miracles that begin to pour out. Now, does God still do miracles today? Good, I'm so glad somebody was awake. I was wondering if you guys were still with me. Yeah. So let's, let's ask again, does God still do miracles today? Right? He totally does miracles today. Don't think for a second that after the book of Acts closes, God takes a sabbatical and just goes away until the second coming of Jesus and then things are going to change again. The Holy Spirit is working today in the church just as the Holy Spirit was working then in the church. God still does miracles. Some of you, if I gave you a microphone, could come up here for hours and attest to the miracles he has done in your life. God still intervenes. God still has power. So so make no mistake about that. But don't get confused. There are no more New Testament apostles today. There are no more people today whom God has empowered with the giftedness of the apostles who just by virtue of their role in the church have the power to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to do all the things that the apostles did. Does God still heal the sick through the prayer of believing people? Of course he does. But it's different than it was with the apostles. So be careful about people who claim to have the power to work miracles today. No person has the power to work miracles. God has the power to work miracles. And every now and then he does it through a person, right? Okay. So, you know, people, people who make these kind of claims, the fruit of their ministry often is born out. And you could see that it's about them, it's not about God, and all of that kind of stuff. So be careful. As Christ followers, you and I have the same Holy Spirit that they had then. But we do not have the same gifts that these apostles had. We're going to learn more about the power of the Holy Spirit as part of our study of the book of Acts. So bear with me, I'm going to stop talking about this for now. Um, And we're going to get back to it. But what's interesting is that what this man wanted... Right, he, he the the beggar. What did he want? He wanted money, right? Do you want money? Yeah, so do I. Right, 
right? That's sort of necessary to buy things and, and live off of, right? He just wanted money so he could be sustained. He had a very clear idea of what his need was, and he was asking to have his need met. What he wanted in this case was a lot less than what God wanted to give him. Man, I wonder how many times I have gotten caught up in chasing after something that I wanted, which turned out to be a whole lot less than what God wanted to give me. This man wanted something, but Peter and John didn't have that to give. He wanted money, which they didn't have, but what they had, they gave him. Look again at verse 6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Can you imagine this? What, what a bizarre concept. This guy's sitting there and he's just thinking, man, if I could just get a loaf of bread, I'd be okay for tonight and I can come back tomorrow and beg again. And God comes along and goes, oh, my friend. What you're looking for is so much less than what I want to give you. Look at verse 7. Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, <clears throat> and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. It says he began to walk. My guess is that's an understatement. With a leap, he began to walk, right? I'm pretty sure he was doing a moonwalk, which I would demonstrate for you, but it would not be pretty. I'm pretty sure he was breakdancing. I'm pretty sure he was jumping up and down. I'm pretty sure he was making a ruckus at church because God had done something for him he never imagined God would do. How awesome is that? He's dancing, he's shouting, he's running around, he's leaping, he's rejoicing. And the people saw it. And they too had been walking past this guy daily for decades. And everybody knew this guy was not a plant. Everybody knew this was an actual lame man who was no longer lame. And they want to know what happens. So once again, as the crowd is streaming in, Peter picks up the microphone. And Peter begins to preach as the crowd gathers. Now, if today you were to go out on the street with a microphone or a bullhorn or something like that in the corner of Huntington and Buena Vista, and you were to stand there and preach, how fast do you suppose the crowd would gather around you? I'd say the cops show up before the crowd, wouldn't you? Now, I've been in places where it's different. I stood on a street corner in El Salvador, preached in Spanish, and watched while hundreds of people gathered around and dozens gave their life to Christ. I was blown away. It's the first time I had ever done street preaching. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I got to go home and try this in the United States. And somebody said, oh, no, don't do that. The culture's different. Here, the crowd is gathering around as Peter preaches. 
and they want to know what happened. <laughs> Meanwhile, our friend the beggar is jumping up and down, running through, high-fiving people, hugging people. You know, he's on his cell phone, texting everybody, videos, the whole deal. And so again, Peter begins to preach. And if we were to summarize, starting in verse 11, all the way through the end of the chapter, let me just summarize it for you. Peter does what he did at Pentecost. He explains their need for a Savior. He tells them about Jesus. He holds them accountable for putting Jesus on the cross. He gives a reason for the hope that is within him. He calls them to repent and believe. And that gets us to Acts chapter 4. Now look at Acts chapter 4 verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus a resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about five thousand. This is church growth on steroids. It's amazing what is happening. But this little section of the story is so sad to me. You see, the Sadducees, you have to understand that the the religious leaders, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we think of them as the same, but they're not the same. They're all priests. They're all religious leaders in the area. But they're like different political parties within Judaism. And one of the big things that separates them is this doctrinal distinctive. See, the Pharisees teach that after we die, one day we will be raised and we will have eternal life if we're Jews and we have followed the Torah. The Sadducees preach that this life is all there is. There is no resurrection. So the Sadducees have a real problem with Jesus and his followers because all the claims about Jesus are based on his what? Resurrection. And so when they come, they, and the Sadducees, by the way, are in charge of the temple guard. And the temple guard are soldiers with full authority of soldiers. And so the Sadducees bring the temple guard and they're not upset Uh, about the healing. They don't care about this man. They didn't care about um, anything that was going on except the content of Peter's message. He was preaching resurrection. This Jesus whom you killed has been raised. It was not the message of repentance that bothered them. It was the claims that Jesus had raised from the dead because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And they couldn't afford to let their political camp fall behind in the argument. This was bad for them politically. They didn't really care about the people. They didn't really care about what was going on. They had a political agenda and they were willing to follow that political agenda no matter what the truth was. Can you imagine? (laughs) So... They have Peter and John arrested. They take them into custody. They throw them in jail. Now, Peter and John had just been on their way to prayer. They they were recognizing their need for God's help. So off they go to the temple to pray. 
Then they do exactly what the Holy Spirit tells them to do, and now they're in jail. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you do exactly what God wants you to do, things get worse, not better? I know nobody preaches on that. <laughs> we, we love to preach on if you just follow Jesus, he'll pay your bills and give you a new BMW and you get the beautiful girlfriend and the whole deal. But sometimes when you're right in the center of God's will, life gets harder for you not easier. That doesn't seem fair. These guys are just cooperating in God's mission and they end up in jail. If only they could have seen this coming. If only Jesus had warned them. If only he had prepared them for this. If only he had said something like, I don't know, in this world you will have tribulation. John sixteen thirty three. Or if he had said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 20. Or if, if Jesus had said, people will hand you over to their courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings on my account as a testimony to them and to all the Gentiles. Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. I could go on and on with these statements of Jesus, but I think I've made my point. This is Christianity. This is what Jesus sold them. This is what Jesus called them to. He called them to a life that has such deep meaning and significance that the difference that would be made in people's life would be an eternal difference. And he said, it will cost you. Sometimes obeying God is costly. Sometimes joining in this commission with Jesus is painful. Later in his uh, letter, Peter put it this way. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. 1 Peter chapter 4. Folks, I'm not here to just present a rosy story about miracles and church growth and exciting times and wouldn't it be great if we could all go back to the book of Acts. The truth is that being on mission with God can be costly. Being on mission with God can be painful. And it's also the most joy-filled, fulfilling thing you can ever experience. As we look at the book of Acts, we're going to discover that to follow Christ is to give up your life so that you can find your true life in him. Peter and John were in the middle of God's will and they were also in the middle of a jail cell. Sometimes those two things are not mutually exclusive. So they brought them to the council the next day. These, by the way, the council that they're now going to sit before, this is the same council who tried and convicted Jesus and sentenced him to crucifixion. Peter and John 
had obviously already decided that their lives were not their own. They were all about the gospel. They were all about the mission. They were all about the glory of Jesus. Uh, Skip down chapter 4 to verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they're before the council now. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. By the way, what had Jesus commanded them to do? Go into all the nations, right? Preaching the gospel. Be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Nothing about their plans is there. Nothing that motivated these men was about their safety. It wasn't about their comfort. It wasn't about their goals. It wasn't about their right. They give them a chance to speak and they don't stand up and say, wait a second, you have no right to do this to us. Wait a second, you can't put us in jail. We haven't done anything wrong. They don't even go there. So they're, they're before the council and all they can think about is the mission. This is convicting to me. I think it should be convicting to a lot of American Christians if I could just be honest and get right up in your business. You see, these days I hear more from Christians about the rights that are guaranteed to us in the Constitution than the mission that is given to us in the Word of God. We get pretty upset when people start messing with our rights. But Peter and John seem to understand that when Jesus called them, he called them to a life that was all about him. And it's no longer about me and my comfort and my ease and my plans and my agenda and my rights. It's about God and his glory and his word and his agenda and his plan. And when we're going to walk in this co-mission with God, we better realize that, yes, praise God by his goodness and grace. You know, most of us who are hearing this message live in the United States of America where we have unprecedented rights and privileges. And I am so, so thankful for that. But I'm telling you right now, those rights are not guaranteed to us. Jesus said, trade your life for mine. Are we going to walk with Jesus in such a way that it's not about me protecting myself, but it's about me spending myself for the glory of God? But I suppose that's a sermon for another day. When the council warned them, when the council threatened them, don't you dare speak another word in this name. And let them go? The disciples knew that those were not empty threats. They had just had Jesus crucified, these same men. So when the going gets tough, 
What do Christ followers do? We pray. Look at verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Why did the nations, why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose had predestined to occur. Verse 29. And now Lord, take note of their threats. And grant your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I would have prayed in this situation too. I'm pretty sure my first move would have been to pray. But I'm pretty sure my prayer wouldn't have been like theirs. My prayer would have been, Oh Lord, you have heard their threats. Protect me and my family. Oh Lord, you heard what they said. Make sure they don't get to us. Oh Lord, you know that they have power to put us to death. Please, God, don't let them take away our livelihood. Don't let them take away our lives. Don't let them injure our families. Don't let them stop What's going on here? My prayer would have been a prayer for deliverance. But that is not how they prayed. They didn't pray how we tend to pray, for our safety, for our comfort, for our deliverance. And by the way, I hope I'm stepping on your toes a little at this point. But if I'm not, let me just ask you to think carefully about this. When you write down a prayer request on the prayer request card and send it in to the church to pray, how often is that prayer request, give me boldness to speak even if they kill me for it? And how often is that prayer request, Lord, someone I care about is hurting, please heal them. I'm, I'm losing my job, please provide for me. Now, now, Scripture tells us to pray about those things. I'm not knocking you for praying about it, but isn't it interesting to note how we tend to pray that the Lord will give us comfort, ease, and safety when, in fact, what he's calling us to is boldness, courage, and power. Maybe it's time we start praying for one another, not just, hey, Lord, please take care of my friend who is out of work, but, oh, Lord, Please, even in the midst of his suffering, don't let him lose sight of you. Make him a light to the people around him and may they see Jesus as he has the boldness to speak up the truth about God. The early church prayed for courage. They prayed for boldness to continue the mission. Look at verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders and take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's an amazing prayer. Oh, God, help me to pray like that. And by the way, God answered their prayer. 
Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. He answered their prayer. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. Guess what? The mission hasn't changed. Not one bit. The Holy Spirit hasn't changed. The message of the gospel hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is the church. So let me ask you some questions. Do you notice the needs of those around you? This is going to be the part you don't like. How many people do you walk by, drive by, sit near and work every day without giving a thought to what's going on in their lives and what their needs might be and if there's some way you might be able to meet those needs? I just, I can't get past the fact that Peter and John had probably been walking past this guy hundreds of times. And here's another question. What do you have to give? Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. What do you have to give? Do do you have an encouraging word to give? How about a hot meal? Could Could you give a hot meal? Sometimes people just need a hug. Could you be the only person that looked someone in the eye and treated them like they had dignity that day, maybe that week? What do you have to give? Peter and John had the power to heal. What do you have to give? And then just one one last challenging question. What do you most often pray for? I, I just... I'm, I was so convicted in my own life. So, you know, let's just make this about me. I'm sure this doesn't impact any of you. But let's just make this about me. So convicted in my own life how often my prayers are about increasing my comfort or the comfort of the people that I care about. And how often my prayers are not about being filled with boldness so I can be a light and a powerful tool in the hands of God to change lives. What do you most often pray for? Challenging questions. But let's not forget, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God used that ragtag group of untrained, uneducated people to lead that new church. He used that group of people to preach the gospel and people's hearts were set aflame. He used that group of people to touch and heal lives and meet practical needs. He used that group of people to stand before governors and kings. He used that group of people to start a movement that continues to move today and into which we have been invited. He can do the same thing through you. The question is, are you available for that? 
Father, we just want to say thank you because we know that in you is all grace, all power, all authority, all love, all hope. And we want to ask you, God, to make us a reflection of all of that to the people around us. God, open our eyes and help us to see what you see when people are hurting. Give us the wisdom to know how to help, not always in the way that people are asking for. Give us the insight to know how to meet those needs. Give us the courage to pray for boldness to speak your word, even above our own comfort. Lord, let us be those who move with you as the wave continues to move ahead and the kingdom advances. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before I let you guys go, I want to make you aware of a couple of things. Uh, we have been talking about, um, for the last couple of weeks, the fact that in June, we're going to resume our Sunday morning children's ministry, which is called Kids Connection. We're very excited about that. Um, and uh, just to sort of make it all work easier for us, the Lord seems to have been moving in the background in ways we didn't even know about because the state of California has now decided that as of June 15th, a ton of restrictions are going to be lifted, right? Um, you've been hearing about this. You haven't been living in a cave, right? So um, a ton of restrictions are going to be lifted. People are going to be able to gather indoors in larger groups. People are going to be able to remove masks in certain situations. They're not going to have to worry so much about social distancing. We're not going to, there's a whole bunch of things that Lord willing, as of June 15th, even within the laws of California and the mandates that come down, we can argue whether they're laws or mandates, but whatever, uh, we're going to be freed up to do a whole lot more. And so what we've decided is that um, we're going to set the first Sunday after June 15th as our big relaunch of our children's ministry on Sunday morning. So that's going to be June the 20th. On June the 20th, Kids Connection begins. And so I'm speaking to you kids and you parents of kids. I want to remind you guys that not only do you need to be here on June 20th because we're going to blow your mind with how amazing it is going to be, the ministry that is going to take place. No pressure, Marari and your team. Um, but on top of that, um, I want to encourage you to be thinking about who you can invite because, guys, here's the thing. I've been saying this for a long time, and I'm going to just keep saying it and saying it. I believe it with all my heart. All ministry is about relationships. And, and we all sit and watch the video that we show the kids, and I think the adults love it even more than the kids, and we think, isn't this great? Um, but you know what? We can, we can entertain kids with video but we're called to make disciples of children. That has to happen through relationships. So our job is to come alongside of parents and help them disciple their kids. And so the opportunity for us to do that is now coming back in a very powerful way, and we're super excited. Our children's ministry is going to be off the hook during the summer of 2021 because finally uh, nobody's going to yell at us if we all gather together and uh, do those kind of things. So starting on the 20th, Kids Connection is back on. And there's going, you're going to be hearing more about summer activities that are going to be happening for the kids. So I want you kids and parents to start thinking about being here and bringing people. 
Who do you know who needs to be here as well? Okay, so that's all happening on June the 20th, and that is your reminder about that. Let me ask you to stand so I could pray over you, and we will send you on your merry way. Father, we pray for your blessing to be upon us, not necessarily just in the sense of life being easier, but in the sense of opportunities opening up. We pray, God, that you would guide us, direct us, provide for us everything that we need to be on mission with you. And we pray, God, that we would not resist the opportunities that you give us. Bless each and every one of us. Fill us with your spirit that we might be a conduit of blessing to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.